Thanks. Great, thanks very much. So, it's a real privilege to, to be able to spend this time with you. So, I'm going to go quite fast. I'm going to be looking at a whole range of ethical challenges and issues that we're facing at the moment in, in the 21st century. Um, some of the issues we're going to be talking about are painful and controversial and difficult. So we're going to be looking at abortion and infertility and suicide and depression. It's going to be a real bundle of laughs. Uh, so, and if you've come expecting some nice, slick, simple Christian answers to deeply complicated and challenging problems, then I'm afraid you're going to be deeply disappointed because I haven't got any nice, slick, simple answers. And in fact, I don't believe there are any simple answers. But at least together we can try and sort of wrestle with some of the issues which we're facing uh, in the modern world. And um, the other thing I want to say is that many of the issues that we're going to talk about are not just issues out there, which touch other people out in society. Now, they're actually, I'm sure, issues in here, in this church. I mean, I don't know anything about virtually all of you, and yet I can guarantee there are people here who've been personally affected by some of the issues we're going to talk about. Um, and I don't say that in, a, in any way to make you feel uncomfortable, but quite the reverse, to make you feel that actually I'm well aware of that and I'm going to try to be sensitive. And we need to be sensitive as we talk about these issues. So, for instance, if you take an issue like infertility, the statistics show that one in seven couples uh, have infertility of some kind and are not able to have a baby without some kind of technological help. So I can guarantee that there are many people here who have been touched by infertility. And for some of you younger people, you may not know yet that you are going to have infertility later on in your life. So these are, these are issues, therefore, that are quite common. When it comes to abortion, the statistics are that one in three women will have an abortion in their lifetime. And for every woman that's involved as a man... And although this is a very difficult subject to talk about, again, many people, including many people in the Christian churches, have been affected by these issues. Uh, when it comes to suicidal thoughts and depression, again, these things are incredibly common. There are many people here who will have been affected by that. So whenever we talk about these issues, we have to talk about them not with judgment and with rhetoric and with conviction in our voices, but I think we should talk about them, if you like, with tears in our eyes, because these are deeply painful topics, and I too have been affected by, by some of them. So I've worked for many years as a baby doctor. This is a very premature baby in an intensive care unit, um, and uh, I've cared for probably many thousands of babies over the years. And out of the normal 40 weeks for pregnancy, or nine months, it's now possible for babies to survive at 24, 23, 22, even 21 weeks um, gestation. So just over halfway. And some of these little babies are absolutely tiny. Um, that's actually my hand and one of the babies on the baby unit. Um, and so... The technology has, has been very successful in enabling babies to survive. And over the years, you know, I've seen great successes and medical triumphs. Just recently, a baby I cared for 
who was born at 23 weeks, and I remember quite vividly uh, caring for her and talking to her parents. She's now just 18 and has gone to university and is doing incredibly well. And it's quite sort of mind-blowing seeing this beautiful young lady and remembering what she looked like. Um, but, of course, not all babies do well, and some babies die, despite our best efforts. Some babies survive, but with serious brain damage. And uh, that then leads to all kinds of ethical questions. Is it ever right for us to switch off the life support machinery and let a baby die? And if so, who should make those decisions? Is it the doctor's decisions? Is it the parents' decisions? Um, I was particularly involved doing research on brain scanning. This is an MRI brain scan of a very premature baby, and it shows bleeding. This white area in the center of the brain is bleeding. And so we're getting better and better at predicting whether or not a baby has brain damage and what the implications might be. But then the question is, what do you do with that information? If we can look into the future, how do we use that information? And in my uh, intensive care unit, I worked at UCH, which is a big neonatal intensive care unit uh, near Euston Station, very similar one to the one that's here in King's. Um, we invest a lot of resources in ensuring that premature babies will survive. Um, so it costs getting on for £2,000 per baby per day to provide this highest level of intensive care. And the total cost for ensuring that a baby survives could be as much as £100,000 or more, uh, paid for entirely by the NHS, free at the point of need, whatever the people's needs are. Um, and we have a big team of professionals. So clearly, we as a society are saying that these little lives matter, that they're precious, that they're worth spending huge sums of money to ensure that a baby will survive. But just one floor away in the hospital is the fetal medicine unit. And here, pregnant women from a wide area of London, the southeast, are uh, assessed and uh, scanned Again, highly sophisticated kind of scanning process that goes on. And in fact, there is now a screening program which is rolled out across the NHS which is intended to try and pick up uh, any kind of abnormality of the baby at the very earliest stage. And, and again, it's, it's a combination of ultrasound scans, of blood tests, and then um, this carries on really throughout the first stages of pregnancy all the way up to later scans and so on. And the whole process is designed really to pick up abnormalities um, so that um, an, an abortion can be offered if uh, an abnormality is found. And so I just want to sort of step back a little bit and just show you some pictures about the process of development in the womb. Because, of course... Until very recently, what was actually going on in the womb was completely mysterious. And certainly at the time the Bible was written, the very famous psalm, Psalm 139, written by David, is where he is reflecting on his own, uh, on the way that God knit him together in his mother's womb. But he had no idea of what was actually going on in his mother's womb. Um, whereas... Astonishingly now, because of advances in science and technology, we actually are able to see a, a lot of detail of what's going on in the mother's womb. That's a sperm and meeting the egg under enormous magnification. 
and it's at the, as the sperm meets the egg, and that actually happens within the fallopian tube after the mother, at each monthly cycle, creates an egg. The sperm and the egg meet together, and um, an embryo is formed, and that's the point at which the genetic code from the mother and the father fuse together and create a new individual. And then this little bundle of cells goes down the fallopian tube and eventually passes into the womb, the uterus, and embeds itself in the lining of the womb. And that takes place at about nine days of age. And um, by four weeks, um, you have this tiny, tiny little being, but the heart is already beating and uh, passing blood around the circulation. And by the time you get to six weeks, um, the the, most of the organs are now have been formed, although they're very, very small, and um, development carries on. By 12 weeks, um, the, the fingers and the, um, there's much greater detail, and um, the, um, all the organs are now present. Uh, but we're able to get much more detailed information now. So this is a 12-week uh, ultrasound image showing the the unborn baby moving around. You can see the, the limbs moving. Um, the, the fetus is, is one or two centimeters only in size, so this is massively magnified. And interestingly, the baby is, is moving from very early on, even though the mother can't feel anything. The, the, the actual, what's called the quickening, which is when the mother can feel the baby's movements, doesn't usually happen until about... 18 weeks, but actually what the ultrasound shows is that babies are very, very active around the time. Um, sadly, uh, many, many abortions are carried out at this kind of stage up to the first 10 weeks, 12 weeks of gestation. By the time you get to 16 weeks, um, babies becoming much more advanced. This is a 16-week ultrasound again, just showing the baby moving around. Now the baby's much more active and moving. Sometimes they do somersaults. Um, and by the time you get to 20 weeks, the baby, again, the scans show very much more detail. Uh, and this is an MRI of a 20-week fetus. Just show the extraordinary acrobatics. So, again, the scan is showing enormous detail now. We're able to see this, the baby and seeing the, the, the movements and the, the activity that the baby is, is going on. And at this stage, it's now possible, uh, soon after that stage, by 22 weeks, it's possible for babies to survive, uh, even though it's actually legal in our current abortion law for abortion to be carried out at any up to 24 weeks gestation for any reason at all. So, um, babies beyond this, and this is a 23-week gestation baby, again, the kind of many babies of which I've cared for over the years. This is an extraordinary photograph. This is fetal surgery. This is the mother's womb, and a hole has been made in the womb. This is the surgeon's finger, the gloved finger, and this is the hand of a little 22-week fetus, which um, surgery is going to be performed on the on the back to correct spina bifida usually. That's, um, 
So that is a sort of background of the amazing things that's going on in the womb and the extraordinary way that technology is able to see now so much more about what is going on. But then you reflect against that and about the statistics for abortion, which are really very startling. So uh, the, last, the latest statistics we have are 2018, and over 200,000 abortions in England and Wales, and compare that with about 650,000 live births. In fact, the number of live births is actually slowly going down at the moment, whereas the number of abortions is, is still going up. So approximately one in four, one in five of all pregnancies will end in an abortion at the moment in the UK. Um, and, and here are some more of the statistics. I won't spend time going into them. But just, again, notice that 1,800-plus abortions happened at 22 weeks or more. So if you think of those 22-week fetuses that we saw, it's still legal for abortions to be carried on. And it's actually technically for legal for abortions to be carried on after 24 weeks. And in my own hospital at UCH and here at King's, late feticides or abortions after 24 weeks are carried out on a regular basis. And some, many times in my own career, I was called up away from the neonatal unit where we were struggling to save the life of some extremely small and premature babies to go one floor up to speak to a pregnant woman where the diagnosis of a fetal abnormality had been made and she was considering whether or not to have an abortion and the baby in her womb was considerably bigger and tougher and stronger than some of the babies were struggling to save one floor down. And then you say to yourself, how is it possible in the NHS and in one hospital for these apparently contradictory things to be going on. And this, this is the kind of reason why I became more and more interested and concerned about the subjects of ethics, because these are important topics which we need to discuss. And they're too important to be left to the doctors. This is something which affects all of us as a, as a society. The number of abortions that are done because of a risk of disability is actually relatively small. It's less than 2% of all abortions. So the vast majority of abortions are done when the baby is completely healthy, and they're done for social reasons. Whereas in my work, this, I focus mainly on these ones because of my work as a paediatrician. The number of abortions that's done because of a risk to a mother's life is actually very small. It's, it's really very unusual, thankfully, for it to be necessary to do an abortion in the case that the mother's life is at risk. So this is amniocentesis, when a fluid is taken from around the baby and is analysed. And quite often, then, the chromosomes will be identified and this pattern will be found. So these are the chromosomes from an unborn baby. She's a little girl because she's got two X chromosomes, but there's an additional 21 chromosome here. So medically, this is trisomy 21, which is uh, Down syndrome. And so we can predict that this baby is going to develop Down syndrome. We can't predict from the chromosomes how severe it's going to be, Sometimes it can be very severe and life-threatening, and other times it can be relatively mild, but we do know that this child is going to be affected in some way by Down syndrome. But now every time that this is diagnosed in the UK, the mother will be given the option of an abortion. And sadly, the statistics show that 9 out of 10 women will choose to have an abortion when Down syndrome is diagnosed. And 
this is a rather complicated diet, uh, diagram, but if you, this shows between 1990 to 2006, this is the total number of, of, of diagnoses. The blue line is the total number of diagnoses of um, Down syndrome, the diagnosis before birth, and the green line is the actual number of babies who are born with Down syndrome. So the discrepancy between those lines reflects the babies who were aborted, the babies who should be here as part of our society, but actually aren't. And this is not just for Down syndrome, but a whole number of other disabling conditions which are diagnosed before birth. And this has led, as you're probably aware, to sort of campaigns where people say, you know, people with Down syndrome and with other disabilities say, don't screen us out. Because many people with disabilities feel that this whole industry of doing all these scans and genetic testing and so on is really trying to weed out people like, like us, people with disabilities. They feel it's the way that the sort of, quote, healthy majority is trying to get rid of people like us. So, again, as I said, these are deeply challenging and, and, and difficult issues but it's interesting to me how the debates that go on about abortion in our society have changed over the years. So in 1967, the first Abortion Act came, and that um, the arguments then about abortion were very much to do with uh, compassion, to do with um, surely the compassionate thing to do is to offer an abortion to somebody who desperately wants to get rid of the baby. But then with the rise of feminism and women's liberation, as it used to be called, the arguments changed. And now it was not so much about compassion, now it's about liberation. Women should be free from patriarchy, free from male oppression. They should be free to do what they like with their bodies. And you can still hear those arguments today, but it's interesting that in many ways the arguments have shifted again, and now the arguments are so often to do with responsibility. It would be irresponsible to bring a baby into the world who, wasn't, who was unwanted or who was not going to have a proper education. Um, it would be irresponsible for you to ruin your own education if, if you were going to carry on with the pregnancy because you wouldn't be able to go to university or something like that. So it's often couched in terms of responsibility. And so abortion is a social duty that you have. But... If you think all well, that's very challenging and difficult, it's about to get a whole lot worse, and that's because of this, which is something called non-invasive prenatal diagnosis. So it turns out that during pregnancy, a very small quantity of the fetal DNA, the genetic material of the unborn baby, is actually circulating in the mother's bloodstream. So by doing a simple blood test in a pregnant woman, you can extract the DNA from the baby analyze it, and then effectively get a readout of the baby's genetic code. And at the moment, this is still a, uh, an experimental technique, but it's being introduced into the NHS, and I suspect within five or ten years' time it will be pretty routine. And uh, it's been shown that you can get the entire genome, the complete readout of the baby's genetic code, just from a blood test in the mother. So... Fast forward five or ten years and you or your partner or your daughter is pregnant and they're really happy and they're looking forward to meeting the baby and they go to the clinic and the clinic says, we'd just like to do a blood test to check the baby's all right. 
And two weeks later you go back and they say, well, you're having a little girl, congratulations. But unfortunately, there's a 60 or 70% chance that she's going to get breast or ovarian cancer before the age of 50. And she's got increased risk of type 2 diabetes. And we're also a bit worried about early onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, do you think it would be responsible for you to bring this baby into the world? Or do you think it would be better to have an abortion and have another attempt to have a healthy child? So you can just imagine the kind of anxiety, challenges, dilemmas which parents, you know, have never thought about anything like this, who just thought they were just having a baby. You can imagine the kind of challenges they have. And, and it reminds me of the saying that nowadays, because of this technology, it's like we're given information, knowledge, which previously only God himself could have. Who would know what you were going to die of in 50 years' time? But God-like knowledge leads to God-like responsibility. And how are we going to use this information? As you're probably aware, there's a big push about removing what, even what restraints there are at the moment on abortion and making abortion completely decriminalized. In other words, it's being argued that women should be allowed to do whatever they like with their bodies. They could have an abortion uh, for any reason at all. Uh, they should be able to get abortion drugs from the internet if they want. They should be able to um, do whatever they like with their bodies. And so this is, is, believe it or not, being supported by the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, the British Medical Association, the Royal College of GPs, and many other professionals. Um, and there's this campaign called We Trust Women, the idea being that we don't trust professionals, we don't trust anybody else, but we can trust women to make the right decisions about their bodies. Um, and at the moment, that, that, that I think it's quite likely, depending on what happens with Brexit, but it's quite likely that this is, is going to be a big debate in Parliament within the next month or two as to whether or not decriminalisation of abortion should take place here in the UK. So they, there are these age-old challenges about the taking of human life the destruction of vulnerable human beings. And that's particularly abortion and infanticide. It also applies at the end of life, and I'm going to come back and talk a bit about euthanasia and suicide. So these, this is about the taking of human life. But actually there's a, small, a whole lot of other uh, issues, and that's not so much to do with the destruction of human life, but it's due with issues about the making of human life, the shaping of human life, and the faking of human life. Sorry, it's a bit slick. But these are the new challenges which are uh, facing us as we go into the future. And one of them is how to make a baby. So when I was a medical student, which is an awful long time ago in the 1970s, I remember I went to a lecture on human reproduction. I thought, that looked very interesting. I'd better go to that one. So I sat in the lecture, and what I basically learned was that a man and a woman had to have sexual intercourse, and nine months later, out popped a baby. So I wrote it all down very carefully in my notebook. Uh, although I had actually worked that much out before I was a medical student. But uh, these days, if you were to go to the same lecture, human reproduction, you wouldn't hear anything like that. What you'd hear is this. You need to have a source of eggs. You need to have a source of sperm. You need to have a womb or a uterus, which you can place the embryo in. And you need to have somebody who's going to look after the baby after it's born. So it's perfectly possible for a baby to have three mothers, a genetic mother, a carrying mother, the person who produces the womb, and 
a social mother, the person who cares for them after they're born. And there's no reason why any of these things should be uh, related. And this leads to all kinds of possibilities, such as egg donation, sperm donation, embryo donation, surrogate pregnancy, and so on. And um, it's, it's creating all kinds of new challenges. And, and, you know, this is a fairly extreme case, but it just shows you the kind of problems just recently reported. A Brazilian mother has given birth to a healthy set of twins who are both her children and her grandchildren. After a traumatic pregnancy, her daughter was born prematurely at seven months and passed away. The 45-year-old teacher started to explore other ways that she could get pregnant. When her gay son said that he wanted to become a father, the entire family, son, mum and dad, had a conversation about it and decided to use the gay son's sperm and the mother's womb and a surrogate mother who, and another mother who pro- provided the egg and implant the embryo in the grandmother's womb. So she was both the grandmother and the mother of her gay son's child. And that just shows you what the technology is possible. And so it's interesting and troubling how these different forces in our society are all weaving together. So there's consumerism, and consumerism says, I want, I want to have a child, I want to have a child in my own family. And moral relativism says, well, why not? What's wrong with it as long as it's properly controlled and we have the right kind of regulations? Why should we stop people doing something like that? And then technology says, we can make it happen, we can make your dreams come true, but it'll cost you. And of course, the cost is often greater than just the economic cost. It's the, it's the human cost, the personal cost. But as science advances, it continues to create all these kind of issues. There's a question of modifying human embryos. Um, and this is reason, leading to the possibility of what's sometimes called designer babies, that you could um, modify a human embryo to have particular genetic characteristics. Um, embryo research is only allowed up to 14 days at the moment, but surprise, surprise, the scientists are now saying, well, if we could push it a bit more to 28 days, we could learn so much more about how embryos develop. And, um, of course, that means that the embryos would then be destroyed after 28 days, but then we would learn more about, um, about what's going on and so on. So those are issues at the beginning of life, just very briefly, issues at the end of life. Um, the whole, as you're probably aware again, there's a huge push towards to the legalization of euthanasia or mercy killing. Uh, different kinds of medical killing are being promoted. At the moment, uh, any kind of medical killing is prohibited by the law. Uh, one of the good things, I think, is that doctors in the UK are governed by exactly the same law as everybody else. So doctors don't have a double O prefix like James Bond. We're not licensed to kill. We have to follow exactly the same law as everybody else. What is being proposed, however, is a new law which would allow doctors to kill in different, in different forms. Uh, as you know, there are some places around the world where medical killing is alive. One of them is Switzerland, which allows doctors to help people kill themselves, although they, they themselves have to be the final one who takes the tablets. And this chap on the right is Jeff Spector, and uh, he was a self-made businessman in his 50s, everything was going well, and then 
he was diagnosed with an incurable tumour on his spine, which was slowly growing, and he was told that, that soon this tumour was going to start pressing on his spinal cord and he was going to end up in a wheelchair. And Jeff Spector said, absolutely not, that's not me, I'm an independent man, I live my life, I'm, I'm refused. And so he called together his family and close friends and they had a celebration meal and here they are having their celebration meal. And at the celebration meal, he announced that the following morning he was taking the plane to Switzerland, to the Dignitas Clinic, and he was going to kill himself. And... Um, he said, suicide is my least worst option, my family disagree, but I believe this is in their best interests." And it's interesting that the, the press write-up, by and large, was very strongly supportive. You know, how, what a noble, altruistic thing to do. He didn't want to be a burden to his family. He didn't want to end up having to be cared for by the NHS. He did the honourable thing. He went out and killed himself. And, and why on earth did he have to travel to Switzerland? Why couldn't we make this available in the NHS? And there have been other tragic cases. This is the case of Daniel James. He was a very promising young rugby player, played for the junior England team. And then he was involved in a horrific rugby accident, fractured his cervical spine, paralyzed from the shoulders downwards. And uh, he became deeply depressed. He was a very sporty guy. His parents tried to chivvy him along. They bought him some uh, tr gym training equipment. And, but eventually, Daniel said to them, look, if you really love me, you'll help me to kill myself. And eventually, he persuaded them to travel with him to the Dignitas Clinic in, in Switzerland. And um, he, was, he was killed there. And Baroness Mary Warnock, very uh, prominent medical ethicist, she came out publicly and said, you know, what noble, loving parents they were and how we should change the law to allow this to be done in the UK. And if we look at the Netherlands, which is the country which has the most experience with medical killing, it's interesting to see that year by year, the total number of cases of, of, of is going up year on year. And in fact, this, these numbers are a big underestimate because there are other forms of medical killing going on in Netherlands called terminal sedation, where they basically, the doctors put someone to sleep but fail to give them any food or water and just keep them asleep for days. And not surprisingly, they then die. Uh, but that isn't, those, those cases don't come under these numbers. They're additional. So it's estimated that somewhere like 8%, up to 10% of all deaths in the Netherlands are now done with some kind of medical killing, uh, intentional killing of some kind. And what's increasingly starting to happen now is that euthanasia for people with dementia, uh, people who say that they, once they're diagnosed as having dementia, they decide they don't want to carry on living and they want to be killed. There was a very sad and, and disturbing case recently in the Netherlands where an elderly woman had knew she was developing dementia and she had made arrangements to say that if I ever become in a more advanced stage, I wish to be killed, and she signed the forms and so on. And then uh, she became increasingly affected by dementia and the doctor who was caring for her agreed, therefore, to... That to inject um, the terminal, the lethal injection to kill her, but actually she then became aware of what was going on and she, and she struggled and said, I don't want to be killed. 
and, and actually she was held down and they gave the injection and uh, she, w- she was killed. And that case then went in front of the, the courts and it just shows again some of the challenging, difficult things which, which these is being raised because of medical killing. That's um, also been extended to children with conditions like cancer or some other uh, terminal or serious conditions. This is Mary Warnock again. If you're demented, you're wasting people's lives, your family's lives. You're wasting the resources of the NHS. I'm absolutely fully in agreement with the argument that if pain is insufferable, then someone should be given help to die. But I feel there's a wider argument that if somebody absolutely desperately wants to die because they're a burden to their family or to the state, then I think they too should be allowed to die by which she means they too should be killed, because she's actually talking about medical killing. So when she said those words, there was a a lot of controversy, and a lot of people, for instance, in the Alzheimer's Association and so on, pushed back and said this was horrific, uh, and, and you shouldn't say things like that about people with dementia. But I know that many, many people have those thoughts. They just don't express them. I know that many of my medical colleagues say, if I ever get dementia, I would want to be killed and they think that it ought to be legalized. So these are very real issues, particularly as we look towards the future and we see the number of people with dementia likely to increase. And again, as I say that, I'm aware that that certainly there will be people here who have close relatives. Maybe you've watched somebody with dementia. My own mother developed dementia, and my own uncle at the moment is alive, and we're caring for him with dementia. So these things are very close to home. And behind it raises the question of what does it mean to die well? If you were asked people what it means to die, how they would like to die, I think you can predict what the commonest answer is. The commonest answer you hear is, I want to die in my bed at night. I want to go out like a light without any kind of warning or premonition. I don't want any kind of awareness. I don't want any kind of warning. I just go, wouldn't that be wonderful? Just go out like a light. I can see a few people smiling and nodding. You know, it's interesting. If you were to go back three or four hundred years and you were to ask people how they would like to die, it was generally agreed that sudden unexpected death like that was the worst possible way to die. To be catapulted into eternity with no possibility of preparing yourself. No possibility of asking forgiveness for the sins. No possibility of making preparations for your loved ones. No possibility of, 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 of confessing things that were on your mind, of, of, of healing relationships that were broken. Just to go out like a light. What a terrible thing. And in fact, there's a prayer, an ancient prayer in the Church of England where, you, where it specifically prays against sudden death because it was such a terrible thing. So isn't it interesting that sudden death, which was seen as the worst possible way to die, has now seen as the best way to die? And I think, to be honest, it tells us a great deal about our own selfishness and narcissism, that we're not thinking about anybody else at all. We're not thinking what the implications would be if we're suddenly found dead in our bed. All we're thinking about is our precious little selves and the fact that we don't want to experience anything that might be at all uncomfortable or unpleasant or frightening. And yet, you know, the truth is that most people don't die like that. In fact, the vast majority of people don't die like that. Most people die in an NHS hospital. And many people die like one of these two ways. 
This is failed cardiopulmonary resuscitation with a person receiving cardiac massage, being injected with adrenaline and other drugs and electric shocks to try and start the heart, which is a terrible way to die. And yet many, many people die like that. Or else they die like this in an intensive care unit with tubes coming out of every orifice, surrounded by anonymous professionals. And again, a terrible way to die. And yet so many people die like this. And it's interesting that if you're a Christian believer here, then there are some statistics which suggest you're more likely to die in like one of those ways than people who don't have any kind of faith. There was a study done in the USA which looked at people with terminal cancer and it turned out that people who had a religious faith were more likely to die in an intensive care unit. They were less likely to have a do-not-resuscitate order they were less likely to have nominated someone else to make decisions before them. And when the researchers asked people why this was, uh, um, there were two main reasons. The first reason was, well, if you're a Christian, you've got to have every possible treatment, because otherwise that's like euthanasia, isn't it? And that's wrong. So I'm a Christian, so I have every possible treatment. If the doctors say there's a treatment for this, then I've got to have it. And the other reason that the Christians gave was, well, I'm trusting God to do a miracle, and I believe he's going to heal me, but I've got to give the Almighty the very best chance of healing me, and that means I've got to be admitted to the intensive care unit. Because if, I'm not, if I don't agree to be admitted to the intensive care unit, I'm not having faith. So I think you can see that these are very real issues which we need to talk about. What does it mean to die, well, that's true whether you're a Christian or not. It's still a very, very important question. As if, well, I'll just mention briefly at the end, uh, palliative care, caring for people in a, in, with respect and treating their symptoms but not trying to prolong their life is a much better option. That's the way I want to die. I want to die at home, but I want to die with palliative care, and I want warning so that I'm able to prepare myself and, and my loved ones uh, as we face the end. Uh, if you're interested in that particular topic, I wrote this book called Dying Well, which addresses it in a lot more d- detail uh, of, of what, how I think dying well should be, look like. Okay, I'm coming towards the end, but I'm going to talk now about Christian responses, particularly uh, from my own Christian faith. And, uh, and then we're going to stop. There'll be going to be a chance for... Um, people to write down questions and um, then we'll, there'll be a time for, for Q&A and general discussion. So Christian ethics, the way we're called to treat one another, comes from Christian anthropology, which means the way we are created. And so if we want to think more deeply about how ethical, how we respond as Christians we need to think more deeply about what it means to be human. Time and time again, I've realized that that fundamental question, what does it mean to be human, lies at the heart of so many of these ethical debates. And the interesting thing is that in Christian thinking, human beings are not self-explanatory. In other words, we don't explain ourselves. However much you investigate the human DNA code and all three billion base pairs that it, that it composes, you will still never understand what it means to be human. It goes back to that analogy, remember, of the red rose. However much you analyse that red rose, 
You'll never understand what it means. It's a bit the same with human beings. Uh, we, are, we are explained by the fact that our meaning comes from outside ourselves. And we see this in this very famous text in the first book of the Bible, where it says, God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. So human beings in Christian thinking are godlike beings. We somehow reflect in a deeply mysterious way the very being and nature of God himself. We're not self-explanatory. The structure of our humanity, the values and purposes of our human lives, they only make sense in the light of our creation in God's image. And because of, of God's image, because God has said that our life is significant, therefore our lives have special value. And it's a simple analogy, but it's a powerful one. And that is, this is just a piece of paper. It's, it's simply, if you were to analyse it, under an electron microscope, you would see it is simply a piece of paper. But this particular piece of paper has special value. It's a £20 note. Why? Because, if you read it, the governor of the Bank of England has made a promise about this piece of paper. He said that this piece of paper has a unique value. And the interesting thing is, what would happen if I scrumpled this up, or twisted it, or distorted it or drew on it and defaced it, would it change the value? Answer, no. The value of this piece of paper is exactly the same, however much it's defaced or, uh, or twisted. Why? Because somebody external has said it's valuable. And it's the same with every single human being. Every single human being, God says, is valuable, is precious. And it's irrespective of how well that they function. And they say, but it's just a piece of paper. The same you could say about us. We're just carbon-based life forms. Not much difference between me and a chimpanzee, or me and a rat, or frankly, me and a, and a fruit fly. The same DNA code inside a fruit fly, believe it or not, is quite similar to the DNA code inside a human being. The difference is that God has said that this particular kind of carbon-based life form is special, is unique, and is precious. That's a fundamental idea. But then, the, in those early chapters of the Bible, there's got something else very profound, and that says that human beings are made out of the dust of the earth. And you may know that in the Hebrew Bible, the word for human, which is Adam, is derived from the word that means ground, which is Adama. And it's actually, therefore, human beings are groundlings, and did you know the same is true in English? Human, the word human, is derived from humus. Not the nice stuff you put on pita bread, but the compost heap. That's what we are. It's actually in our very names. We are made out of the dust of the earth. And the interesting thing is, in the way that the Bible narrative tells the story, it's clear that this is part of our design. We are designed to be weak and fragile and vulnerable and dependent and to use a philosophical term, contingent, which means we're affected by uh, random forces and so on. And this is part of design. If you're a Christian and you're thinking about theology, this is nothing to do with the fall. This is nothing to do with evil. Actually, no, this is part of the design. This is the way God chose to make us. We're designed to be physical and dependent. And you know, you came into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. And the very fact that you're sitting there and looking reasonably together 
tells me that when you were born, somebody cared for you. Somebody loved you. Somebody fed you. Somebody kept you warm. Somebody wiped your bottom. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You would have died. And then we go through a phase in our life where we care for other human beings. And, and we feed them. And we look after them. And we wipe their bottoms. But, you know, most of us are going to end our lives utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of other people. And that's what happened to my lovely mother, who was transformed from this very active, dynamic, caring lady into someone who could do absolutely nothing for herself, uh, who was totally dependent on 24-hour nursing care. She couldn't feed herself, she couldn't wash, she was confused, she was hallucinating... And near the end, I was visiting her in the care home where she was receiving 24-hour care. And somebody thrust a yogurt pot and a teaspoon into my hand, and I was saying, open your mouth, open your mouth, here it comes, open your mouth, open your mouth. And then I suddenly realized, I had a flashback. This was precisely what she used to do for me. But now the tables were turned, and I was feeding her. And I remember distinctly thinking at that time, you know, this is the way it was meant to be. I was learning more of what it meant to be a son, And she was learning more of what it meant to be a mother because dependence is part of the story. It's it's part of the way that we're made. And that's not easy. It's not easy to become dependent. It's not easy. And yet, it actually seems to be part of the narrative of the story. So dependence is not an alien, subhuman, undignified condition. It's part of the narrative of every human life. And then finally, we're made into a family... So interestingly, both in the Bible narrative and in reality, it turns out we're all genetically related. It turns out that every single human being on the planet has a single male and a single female ancestor. So I can tell you, if you turn to the left or the right as you're sitting here and you look at the person next to you, you're looking at a distant relative. Every single person in this church is a relative And actually, if you were to go out down Denmark Hill, every single person you pass is a relative. And so in Christian thinking, social ethics is family ethics because we're all related. That's why we're called to treat even the stranger and the immigrant with care because we're all the same. So I just want to fast forward, and I'm coming to the end but, you know, this is a, an ultrasound scan from a very, very early stage. This, this little blob is actually five millimetres, half a centimetre. And it's just a little blob of tissue. But what does love see? Love sees a baby. And that's, that's the calling we have as human beings to say, how do we treat this being in the womb? Do we see it just as a blob of tissue or do we see it with the eyes of love and say here, however tiny, however pathetic, however dependent, here is a unique and special being. Now, interestingly, the Christian story doesn't stop there. You could could think, okay, so God has made these amazing people and he's made us very dependent and vulnerable and, you know, it's like God says, well, you know, good luck with that. I've made you this way. You know, it's going to be tough, but all the very best, you know. No, something else happens which is so bizarre and so unexpected that absolutely nobody saw it coming, but God himself, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, turns himself 
into one of these pathetic, tiny little carbon-based life forms. And he develops in a human womb. And he experiences, and when he's born, he needs to have his bottom wiped. He needs to be fed. He needs to be washed. And at the end of a cross, at the end of his life, on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, who Christians believe is God himself, the very creator of the universe, is stretched out on a cross, and through parched lips, he says, I am thirsty. And he can do nothing for himself. He's utterly and totally dependent. And yet at the same time, the Christian faith says he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. So God has entered into the human experience. And as one theologian put it, there's there's nothing you can experience in your life which in some sense God himself hasn't been there first. He was with us in the darkness of the womb as he will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. God himself has experienced human dependence. And so our humanity is not a barrier coming between us and God. It's the very means by which God is revealed. And so I believe that we should defend the preciousness and the integrity of every human life. I don't think we can ever say of a human life, it's worthless, it's pointless, we need to get rid of it. That doesn't mean that we have to give every possible treatment. Sometimes it's right to say enough is enough. It's right to say we will allow death to occur. But allowing death to occur is very different from killing, from intending death. That's something I haven't time to talk about more, but I'm happy to discuss that in the Q&A if you'd like. So I'm coming to the end, and I haven't, I, I've run out of time, but I just want to say, and especially for those of us who are Christian believers, whenever we say that something is wrong, it's not good enough to stop there. You have to go on and say, and here is a better way. And just as I close, I want to point to one, one of the better ways which Christians have developed and, and that is the, the crisis pregnancy centres. My wife, Celia, for many years has run a crisis pregnancy centre in Islington, which is a, a Christian organisation which just reaches out to women in distress, either with an unplanned pregnancy, or who've, who've had a child loss, such as a miscarriage, or who've been traumatised by previous abortions. And they're not campaigning, they're not involved in politics or rhetoric, they're simply showing Christian compassion. And um, the, the, one of their mottos, and it's, it's uh, I'll finish there, is they say this, love is a way of saying to a person, it's good that you exist, it's good that you're in the world. The trouble with both abortion and euthanasia is that it says it's bad that you exist. It'd be much better for the world if you didn't exist. But love, and especially Christian love, never says that, I believe. It always says, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in the world. I'll stop there.